So Lisa, last week I was strolling and perusing the aisles of Target and I was going over to the water aisle, the bottled water aisle, minding my own business and I saw an end cap. And I'm usually not a big candy person. I mean, I have a hankering for Twizzlers every once in a while, but I saw this bag and it said Skittles on the bag but there was literally no color on mm. the bag. Like, like my brain didn't even want to compute what I was seeing because we all kind of, you know, connect Skittles to rainbows, every mm-hmm. color. Yeah. And so when I saw this end cap, I stopped and I thought about it. Last time I checked, I thought I have a bachelor's degree in marketing. So I'm thinking to myself, my, you know, some neurons should fire at some point to understand what's going on here. So I didn't, I, I walked away confused. Oh, I took a picture first, walked away confused and posted it on Facebook to find out what the heck is going on. Uh huh. I, I, I don't I'm still confused to this moment. I'm still confused about the Skittles bag. So, OK, so there was no rainbow on the Skittles. <laughs> Not one. Not one. OK, OK. So I'm guessing there was some diversity and inclusion, something happening there. And my guess is some non-diverse diversity committee came up with this idea. (laughs) Yeah, I I think so too. Some non-diverse diversity committee or some organization that didn't have a diversity committee at all. So I think we need to break this down and talk about it. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, Lisa, I'm still in shock over this Skittles bag. I took a picture of it. I posted it on my my Facebook page. And as I'm getting responses, I literally said in my post, Look at this. Somebody please explain to me what the heck is going on here because I don't mm-hmm. get it. Okay. This many years in DEI work and an undergrad degree in marketing, and I still don't compute what the what's going on here. Uh-huh. And so when I posted, what was so curious was there were tons of responses to this picture that I posted. And almost everyone had a different interpretation of what it meant and what we were supposed to do. And I'm thinking to myself, mm-hmm. isn't that like the complete ass opposite of what marketing is supposed to do? Right. You know, it's supposed to be clear. Your brain is supposed to pick it up pretty quickly. And it's supposed to give you something to do in response. Buy the product, donate to this, something. And, and I'm still confused. Yeah. I mean, I have since seen the photograph and I felt kind of stupid because I was like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like, am I missing something? I feel like, yeah, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand it. And so then I felt like, yeah, I, I like I wasn't paying attention or something. So that right. is not the response they're probably looking for. Not at all. Not at all. And so what was really cool about all the responses, though, to this nondescript Skittles bag um, was that folks were immediately saying, like, hashtag marketing fail or I don't get it or how do mm-hmm. we respond or I'm not buying that, um, you know, and so. Some people were even saying, like, this is doing too much. Like, even in the name of diversity, it's doing too much. We're encroaching upon Pride Month. And so this, to many people, was confusing. 
like one person, which I could not stop laughing to save my life. One person said, this is like a diversity project that somebody did on a Friday at three o'clock when everyone was ready to leave for the week. And they just threw this marketing plan together and ran with it. And so part of me feels like it's effective because we're still talking about it. But the other part of me is like, who was responsible for this? Did you have a committee together? And it's like a double fail. Either they had a committee together that did not meet the mark or they didn't have a committee at all. And I just think there's some lessons that could be learned about, Uh you know, who makes these decisions and how do we pick them and how do we, you know, charge them to go forth? They missed it big time. They did. And it just feels like they were trying to outsmart themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like trying to be so (laughs) clever that it then became like incomprehensible. (laughs) Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Diversity committees. I have a long history with diversity committees, particularly in higher education. And some have been very effective and others not so much. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot to unpack here because what I saw last year and have seen in previous years is organizations turn immediately to the diversity committee. Let's establish a committee. Like this is the panacea for all diversity and inclusion problems in the organization. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they can help if done right, but I feel like there are more mm-hmm. wrongs than rights when it comes to diversity committees. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We we have a long list of lessons learned, especially when it comes to what not to do, <laughs> what not to do and what to do. Um, one of the things that I know personally, and maybe this is kind of my soapbox going back to many of our conversations, Lisa, about, you know, a woman's worth. Um, and underrepresented person's worth is one big thing. It, it sounds kind of counterintuitive, but to me, it's not. Maybe it's because I own a business and you know all of that. But one of the things I think about often is, please don't try to get free labor from someone who does it professionally. That's one yeah. thing I will say. Yeah. Um, and I, I just have a little soapbox around that. So that's you know one thing I would suggest. You know, if you know someone that does this work internally, of course, it's a conflict of interest sometimes to hire that person outright. However, they can't go without compensation. You know, that's like a double entendre where you're already taxing a person that has probably has the identities that you need support in. And you're saying you're not willing to compensate them, whether it's time, money, you know, access to something. Um, So I would definitely say that's one thing not to do. Um, but yeah, there's gotta be some other things not to do, um, Mm -hmm. around this topic, but it's, it's so many ways to fail when it comes to DEI committees. Yeah. What I've seen a lot is that the organization turns to the one person of color, the one woman, the one disabled person, the one trans person and says, can you lead the diversity committee? Right. Cause you must get it. Um, Mm -hmm. which feels horribly tokenizing and, um, you know, also was interesting uh, last year, an endurance sport uh, colleague of mine who works for an endurance sport organization was talking to me about the diversity committee that they're establishing and the affluent white male uh, CEO was chairing it. So you've got some interesting power dynamics there that probably aren't going to go very well. Um, And they were annoyed that the three staff members of color in this really large organization didn't want to be on the diversity committee. So they kind of talked to her who, and she's a white woman um, who supervises at least one of them, I think um, Mm -hmm. about why don't they want to be on the committee? Like that's a problem. 
And I found that so offensive, right? I'm not actually sure how that resolved, but I don't think the diversity committee has actually yielded anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that... (laughs) Uh, let, let's let our privilege slip show once again here with not only are we asking people to do labor that's on top of their own job, but we're appalled when they don't say yes to doing the labor. Yes. Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. So, okay. So that gets into another point that we need to kind of flesh out here is we need to think through how do you select those folks? And sometimes it's, it gets really interesting because some people are nominated by someone else mm-hmm. or they self-nominate. Um, you know, I think volunteering is, eh, that, that might be a whole nother podcast on the volunteering piece um, because it starts to, you know, give them an inch and they'll take a mile type of thing. Whereas, you know, the yeah. committee, oh, we're only expecting this committee to take a couple hours. Those that don't do this work professionally, grossly under estimate the amount of time it takes to do this type of work. Yeah. And so, you know, I just think it, we need to really flesh out how do you select those people? And it may be dependent upon your organization's type, but, you know, even the people that raise their hand aren't always the most appropriate ones. They may be willing, but they may not have certain skill sets, et cetera. And so, you know, they might become more of a hindrance than a help as well. So the selection process has got to be really tight. Mm, that's an interesting point because no diversity committee I have ever been on has involved any kind of nomination or selection process. It's been, this committee is being established, who mm-hmm. wants to be on it? And it's the same group of people that volunteer every single time, right? And so mm-hmm. there's not any learning that gets spread around to those resistant people because it's just always yeah. the same group of people who care about this stuff and they volunteer their time, right? But there isn't yeah. any extra pay and there's absolutely no like, framework for this diversity Mm, committee mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. so that's an interesting way of thinking about it like creating more structure through some kind of nomination process yeah Mm. yeah some type of nomination process application process of some sort that i i think there needs to be some type of process and i realize that there are organizations that you know they're already pulling teeth to get people to want to do this work but sometimes that that's where things get a little interesting you know Mm. that it's where you know, yes, you want people that are enthusiastic about the work, but sometimes enthusiasm um, makes something worse than better if that's all you have. And so you've got to have some, you know, willingness to participate in professional development. And there's just some criteria for the folks that you might want. um, And therefore you have to, you know, spell that out. Who might be the best folks for this work? And it can't just be based on identity. Right. You can't make an assumption that a someone right. who experiences marginalization wants to or has time right. to be on the committee or right. that they um, have spent, you know, a lot of time thinking about diversity and inclusion broadly as it, you know, mm. exists within kind of an employee context. Certainly they right. have personal experiences and understanding right. from that perspective, which isn't obviously uh, invalid. It's very important, but it's not fair mm-hmm. to them, have them bring that to the committee. And again, like people, So then you're putting these individuals who don't have training in this work, you're Mm -hmm. having them kind of put their emotions and their experiences on their sleeve for the consumption of other people on the committee. So that's right. That's right. That's right. right. Exactly. Exactly. And they're, they're almost using themselves as the guinea pig in the science project. Right. Which is sickening to me actually. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how that usually plays out. Um, but then once you get the, 
quote unquote right group and right is very contextual. Uh, but once you get that group together, I think it's really important to determine what they're supposed to be doing and what they're yeah. not supposed to be doing yeah. because you know, we know how this works, Lisa. Anything and everything in relation to diversity gets thrown to a group that's unpaid, usually mm-hmm. doesn't have too much power other than kind of advisory roles. And, you know, obviously may have some other challenges like supervisors not wanting them to spend too much time on this work. There, there's lots of different barriers to that. But, you know, for me, it's like, okay, what are we here for? And what are we not here for? Because there's so many things that ooze over into whether it's, uh, you know, personnel or membership, if you're talking about an endurance sport club, um, hiring specifically, if you're working in a business or an organization Mm -hmm, where human mm -hmm. resources are key. And so none of these folks are human resource professionals with certifications from SHRM. You know, these are folks that are willing and interested in the work, but what do you want them to get done? And in what time frame do you want them to get it done? So then yeah. they're not set up for failure. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I see usually happen is that they, there's no parameters. They're given everything to do in like a year or two term limit. And then they're seen as uh, not as successful. I won't say a complete failure, but not as successful because nobody got it clear in a charter what they were supposed to do right. in that time frame. Right. They're set up. They're completely yeah. set up. Yeah, I think that's one of the major problems with diversity committees is there's um, no structure around what they should be doing and how they should be doing it and for how long, right? And in some cases, there's not even um, any kind of assessment or evaluation done initially about where people in the organization see the gaps that need to be addressed, right? So then you just have, let's say, you know, we know most most organizations are run by um, white people for the most part. Um, You have this white person saying, here's what I think this diversity committee could do if they even do that, right? But it's not um, informed necessarily by the community um, within which this diversity committee is going to exist. And then, you know, the loosey-goosey, get it done when you can. I mean, it feels a bit book clubby, right? Like, you know, let's all have a book club and talk about these serious issues, but we'll do it with wine. And then over time, the book disappears and it's just a a fun time with friends and wine. That kind of, so the diversity committee feels like the employee context version without the wine. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And so what started out being a relatively noble task turns into comfort and socializing when DEI work should be uncomfortable. um, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying don't be social, but if you want to talk about in the function of collaboration to get things done, okay, I'm cool with that. If we're talking about sitting and, and uh, having a conversation about a Netflix show that makes us all feel the warm and fuzzies about diversity. I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, just being clear, what are we trying to get done here? So no one is, I mean, obviously there's not enough, enough time in the day to do all of this work. In addition to the profession they are hired to do, you know, if you're working for, you know, the bike company and your job is to put spokes on the damn wheel that's what you're hired to do. You may have volunteered to be on the DEI committee. So how much time is going to be that parameter of DEI work? Because you have to cut it off sometime. 
because you're yeah. not getting compensated most yeah. likely. Yeah. You can't add it to your already 40, 50 hour week. You know, it's making me think of faculty, you know, when faculty members are chairs of departments or they take on some kind of leadership role, they get a course release, right? So yes, get, yes, yes, um, yes. There's an acknowledgement that this other thing that they're now doing takes up time. And so it's not a request right. to do it on top of their course load. They then teach less to accommodate right. it. So I that's feel right. like that's the spirit that needs to be taken into um, industry, mm-hmm. into organizations that if we're going to have this committee, we're going to put some parameters around it and give you a charter or mission, you know, so you have mm-hmm. tangible things that you're going to work towards. Then, mm-hmm. you know, you get four hours a week out of that 40 hour work week where right. you can spend time on that. Um, mm-hmm. And you're relieved from your, you know, the stuff that you've been employed to do. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Um, we, on my particular campus, we call them course reassignment, where we literally mm. reassign those tasks to someone else who is not serving on some type of committee or other otherwise, which has actually worked out with the, um, and it would apply to this conversation too. It's worked out with helping the imbalance of invisible labor now. So if yes. you're the, if you're the white guy who never sits on any of the committees is not interested in the DEI committee, but you have the bandwidth to take on these other responsibilities. So that frees up Shauna slash Lisa to serve the organization on this committee, then guess what? Mm -hmm. White guy, you're getting extra work. And that's your contribution to the DEI committee's function. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a really great way to think about it. That's your contribution, right? You're not willing to be on the committee. Okay. You're going to take on some extra work so that the person who is willing to be on the committee isn't exactly. overloaded. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's where we get to, you know, of course there, there will be some resistance. We know this. Um, and so, but when that resistance comes up, how will the organization respond? And they will have to respond in a very clear way that this entire organization is moving in the direction of DEI. Now, whether you are making a contribution to DEI actively, for example, the committee, or passively, invisible labor to free others for that committee, we're still going in that direction. And so you can now choose whether you want to go in that direction with us or the door is that way. Mm. And, And I know that sounds so harsh, but I do think that, you know, oftentimes organizations who see folks resistant to DEI don't want to entertain that conversation. You know, they don't want to entertain the conversation of, oh, well, someone will have to leave if they're not interested right. in this work. Um, but by their, uh, by their determination or by ours, but that gets into, you know, the professional development piece of coaching someone out of a role. Right. The organization's going in a different direction. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that is a line few organizations are willing to cross, right? If you're not willing to get on the bus in any capacity, then you yeah. don't get a ticket to the bus anymore, right? Right, so, right, right. Orgs don't do that. I mean, we saw that with yeah. that cyclin team, right? When we talked about digital blackface. Oh, and cyclist, yes, yes. Um, yes who yes. kind of got a wrap on the wrist or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately, the cycling team didn't ditch him. Yep, so they're not really right. willing to put their money where their mouth is. That's right. They didn't get rid of him. Didn't even, you know kind of see it as an option. And sometimes I think that's fear, you know, especially for businesses and, you know, so forth. I think sometimes that's fear, uh, fear of getting sued or fear of what have you. Uh, Lisa, you know, in higher education, higher ed will groom you right up out of having any trepidation about being sued because people are sued all the time. 
In fact, you know, it's just very litigious. People have the right to sue. And, you know, I always say, you know, the best organizations have really good general counsel and they get paid to do their job. Let them do it. And, and usually the person suing runs out of money well before the organization does. Right. So right. It's, it almost ends up being a moot point. But, you know, let, let's, let's compare it since, you know, I feel really strongly about DEI also being professional development. It's kind of like you would let somebody go from a job if their job was to put on bike spokes and they constantly got mm-hmm. it wrong. Yeah, yeah. You would let them go, right? Well, if DEI is part of the professional development portfolio of every human being in your organization, if they are not performing in that area, then you would also let them leave. Yeah. So, so these are things that are really important to the overall organization and, and creating a culture around DEI. Yeah. And a piece of that then trickles down from the top, right? So if you have um, this committee and let's say this committee is charged with revamping, hiring policies and practices, performance reviews, that kind of thing with a a view to DEI Mm -hmm. and you have, um, a supervisor that is annoyed that their staff person is on this committee, annoyed that they're going to have to be hold people accountable to this new criteria and themselves be held accountable, right? And then they start acting out, retaliating against their employee, being right. passive aggressive, right. et cetera, et cetera. If you right. don't have a person at the top of the organization that says, this is an expectation of being an employee in this organization, and we are all moving in this direction, as difficult as it might be for some of us. Um, and if I, if it comes to my attention that there are people who are passively or actively in some cases resisting, then we're going to have a conversation, right? You've got to have that conversation. And and I think that's what's so crucial about this is, you know, having a a DEI backbone, if you will, (laughs) to have that crucial conversation, because then that, that feeds back into, once again, the empowerment or lack thereof of the DEI committee. If you have people that are (laughs) Look, we're kind of going back into um, uh, energy vampires a little bit, but, you know, going back to who are the people or what are the barriers to the success of the DEI committee? They have to be moved, removed. uh, um, Sometimes I say contained, you know, the person I may not be able to, this this goes back to our conversation about faculty, people that you can't let go um, based on a policy or procedure, what have you. If you can't, remove them, then how can you contain them to keep the, uh, keep keep the, the negativity, um, and the resistance down, you know, you've got to find something to do with those people, but you have to have the courage to do it. Uh, That's another conversation. Yeah. And it makes me think of, um, folks who are undercutting the efforts of a DEI committee, right? So let's say you've got the nomination process, you've got, um, a charter, you've got a direction, you've got support from leadership, but you have a handful of maybe like middle management people who are kind of undercutting the work of the diversity committee mm-hmm. intentionally because they don't agree with it. Right, um, right. That is really problematic. And I've seen that happen time and time again. I've seen it happen with um, committees that aren't about DEI per se, but related issues. And then yeah, they're yeah. not contained. Those people aren't contained. And so they sabotage the committee, which then allows them to say at some later point, I told you so. I told you it was a waste of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then then they end up being kind of the uh what what is it called when you know you you manifest exactly what you said you didn't want to? Um and so I, I just kind of feel like those are the people that, you know, they end up sowing these negative seeds. And so 
keeping one's eyes open. So that kind of goes back to what we've talked about a few podcasts ago around finding DEI champions, you know, finding also the DEI barriers, the DEI concerns, the, the people that are constantly pro- problematic to advancing the work. What are you going to do with those folks? Because they may be phenomenal at their job or yeah. their role, but if they're constantly undercutting the work of the DEI committee, you also have to do something with them or you're um, uh, building up with one hand and tearing down with the other and still ending up nowhere. Yeah. So we got to do something with those folks. Yeah. And this is where we come back to power and authority kind of um, given mm, to mm-hmm. the DEI committee, right? There are so many DEI committees that are full of volunteers who are doing it on top of their job. They have, they're in a quote unquote advisory capacity. Leadership doesn't listen to them. They have no direction, right? So if you really oh, right, want this right. to work, you have to give them power to do something about it, right? Absolutely. Versus just advise leadership. Absolutely. Yes, Absolutely. And so, and, and I think what's really important about, even with the advisement, like how to invite, how, how to empower the advisement piece, you know, is there any evidence that even the advice is being heard, thought through, critiqued, folded into the work? Is there any evidence of that? I've even seen DEI committees fail because they were doing a lot of advisement that uh, was going through a bottleneck, once again, a barrier, an individual who was a bottleneck. And so let's say the DEI committee made 10 suggestions, but only three of them got to senior leadership. Yeah. That's not advisement anymore. Well, I, I don't even know what that is. That it's a, mm-hmm. it's an abuse of the work and the time and effort that people put in to do really great advising. Um, but you still have that person that was the, the bottleneck to the flow yeah. of communication, which then um, uh, impeded I'm trying not to use ableist language, Lisa, impeded the committee. Um, and, and that's problematic. So, you know, I think what's interesting with these committees is that what you do to establish them and what you don't do when you establish them can be equally as important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot to it. it. It's almost a science, really. Um, and, you know, like I was sharing earlier, I've had a number of organizations that, especially over the last year, that came to me saying, hey, you know, we want to establish this committee. And what's interesting is that out of those organizations, all of them started at a different place with the work, whether they were creating a brand new committee or they were, um, they had a a committee that they were trying to reinvigorate in some way, um, or they were trying to change the charge of the already existing committee to something different. They, they were just starting in all different places. And so finally, I just kind of got to this place where I said, here's a little checklist of things to do, figure out where you're starting in this process and run with it. Um, so yeah. for example, there were some committees that were, they had been established for years, but never had a charter and then wondered why they weren't doing really good work. Well, because you're responsible for everything. You know, if one person sneezes diversity, then all of a sudden that's your problem. No, a charter should say what is your concern and what is not. And so I I just think we really need to be critical about where we're starting and what are kind of the next steps. Yeah, because diversity and diversity committees, it's kind of an amorphous um, concept, right? And that's why I think um, organizations flock to the diversity committee because it's easy, but it's also in many ways meaningless if you're not going to do... Um, any of these things that we've talked about with the committee. And so, you know, we encourage the establishment of diversity committees, but not to the point where they're a joke, 
right? Because I hear that. I hear people who do <laughs> yes. this work joke yes. about the quote unquote diversity committee and how useless they are, right? And then how tokenizing they are and they don't get any training and they don't know what they're talking about and all of the above. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and it ends up being, once again, a very symbolic and performative measure for an organization. I've seen it happen yeah. with DEI yeah. committees. I've seen it with the role of some type of chief diversity officer of some sort is that they're given a laundry list of things to do with no parameters, no empowerment, no money, no, no even time resources. And on top of that, they're not given any skills as well, even as far as professional development skills. Mm -hmm. And so they're expected to do magic with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And then get, get held accountable when they don't. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's not okay. Like I, I know I always go to the extremes. I would almost rather you not have one. Right. If you're not going to be right. really uh, strategic about how you do it, I'd almost you rather not have one because then it's just really great window dressing and a great intention with no impact, which mm-hmm. I don't care for. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do it? Why do it? Yeah. And it's, it comes, the window dressing is a great way to put it. Right. And I, in, in those window dressing diversity committees, you might get some kind of training agenda that comes out. Um, they themselves might get trained or maybe there's like a few training sessions that get recommended and get implemented in the organization. But I say this to my students, you know, training isn't the be all and end all. Like training That's right. doesn't That's fix right. these deep seated problems. So if you That's don't right. empower the committee and if you're not empowering the committee to look at systems, policy and practice, in addition, perhaps to establishing some kind of training program, then yeah, it's window dressing. Like you're not really connected to or committed to going to the root, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I'm not even saying that, you know, every single point of advisement should be taken and, and run down the street by the CEO or mm-hmm. the, uh, yeah. the, the tri club uh, president, or I, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that I've seen it too many times before. I, I even bowed out of a DEI committee this year when I was asked to do so because w- when I was asked to serve because I asked some really hard questions that nobody had answers to. Mm. And I had to, going back to energy, I had to make a determination, is this going to be worth my energy to do? And if I see that it's not, I'm not interested because I have been past this rock before. And so, you know, when I ask questions about, you know, what's going to be the compensation for this time commitment? Well, who does this committee report to? Well, you know, what do you see as being a successful DI committee in the next year or two? Like, what would be the outcomes of that? And there are no answers other than, oh, we just thought it would be a great idea to have a yeah. DI committee. Yeah. Get out, please get off my phone. Like, like I always say, get off my phone and get out of my email. If you have not thought very critically about the why, mm-hmm. why are we doing this? Well, there and was then- no why. Yeah. And even if there isn't a why and it's like a kind of knee jerk reaction, then when someone like you was asking those questions, being open to hearing and answering said questions, right? Like with a, mm-hmm. oh, we didn't think of that. That's great. That's We're going to develop yep. some answers to those questions. Um, yep. Yep. Absolutely. You know, so. Okay. So I'm thinking we just talked about a lot and we're both very energetic and excited about it. So maybe we should (laughs) recap for our listeners, the key things they need to think about if they're in an organization that has a diversity committee, that's not Mm. doing well, that's flailing yeah, or they're thinking about establishing one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say the first thing would be to make sure that you have 
a process for selecting who's going to be on that committee, whatever that, that might be. Have a process. I would definitely say have a charter. What are they going to do and what are they not going to do? I would definitely say determine how you want to compensate them for that work, even if it's a 30% discount off of, you know, their tri kit for the year, whatever it is, there needs to be some type of compensation considered. I do think that there needs to be some type of professional development for everyone that sits there. I don't care how vocal they've been. I don't care how many oppressed identities they carry or they represent. They still will need some common language for what they do and common concepts around that. And then I also think there's need, there needs to be some type of broad socialization for the entire organization so that people know that this is a priority, like you said, coming from the top and that you either need to get on this train or get off, but this is a priority that we're expecting everyone to contribute mm -hmm. to in some way. And from there, even just making that statement, it's clear to the organization what's important. And it's almost like a warning of, hey, make sure you get out of their way while they're doing their work. They're right. doing their thing. Yeah. If you're not gonna help, get out of the way. And I just think those are some key broad strokes to think about with this work because there's so many great ways to do it right and many more ways to do it wrong. So here we are. Yeah. I think a good checklist like that would be important. And so I wonder if um, Skittles um, had, had had that checklist, perhaps would they have come up with this, um, you know, removing the color from their Skittles as an, uh, a demonstration of allyship to the LGBT community during Pride Month, which just, yeah, I've, I've <laughs> makes no sense. No sense. No sense. I, I might send an email. You know, I, I'm famous for my emails now, Lisa. I might send an email and ask them if they have a DEI committee and if so, who in the world is on this committee? And can I please come help to train them right. on what they are missing here? Okay. This yeah. is incredible. Let, let's go train them, Lisa. We'll, we'll get them together. The Unfazed Podcasts and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash Feisty Triathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time. <laughs>